Tech Fighter Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 514 for the 9th of October, 2016. This week, whether you use it as a plug-in for Photoshop or Lightroom, or as a standalone application, Alien Skin's latest version of Exposure is a winner. Some people love Firefox. Some people hate Firefox. Many do both. I have some suggestions for making Firefox a bit more lovable. In short circuits, why backup is so important. That dating application on your smartphone might be giving away a lot more information than you know. And in spare parts, only on the website, Epson's new scanner is intended for those who need to scan lots of old photos, applying arcade game technology to learning how to code, an online security test for your business, and Oracle asks if your employees have what they need to do their jobs. This is one of those highly visual programs, so you'll want to make sure that in addition to listening to the podcast, you head over to the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. There are lots of pictures there this week. Alien Skin's latest X2 version of Exposure continues its efforts to be more than just a plug-in for Photoshop and Lightroom. Exposure still operates as a plug-in for those applications, but Alien Skin continues to develop features that make it viable as a photography workflow management tool. I'll come back to that in a moment. First, though, let's take a look at what's new in X2. A spot healing tool has been added for portrait touch-ups without having to export the image to another application. Some new faded preset looks give users additional starting points. A histogram panel provides feedback so that clipping whites and blacks can be eliminated or minimized. And a history panel provides a powerful way to maintain multiple versions of an image. Exposure X2 supports many, but not all, raw camera formats. For example, most of the images created by cameras in the Samsung NX series of mirrorless cameras are supported. However, not the NX500. That happens to be my primary snapshot camera. Images from that camera are recognized only by Samsung software, Adobe Lightroom, and Adobe Photoshop via Adobe Camera Raw. Exposure X2 has improved search capabilities. Users can identify images based on the camera used, shutter speed, ISO, and a lot of other metadata. An improved export function provides more flexibility in renaming and resizing images that are intended for use in other applications. Previously, a separate application, Alien Skin Bokeh, is now part of Exposure. Whether you pronounce it Bokeh or Bokeh, it's the background out-of-focus effect created by a lens with a wide aperture. The software function makes it possible to apply that effect after the photo has been made, to place additional emphasis on the primary subject. Exposure X2 is available alone or as the main application in the Exposure X2 bundle. The bundle includes SnapArt 4 for painterly effects and BlowUp 3 for improved enlargement of small images. 
Individually, Exposure X2 sells for $150, upgrades are $100. The bundle sells for $200, and upgrades from any previous version of any app in the bundle is $120. So let's take a look at Exposure X2 in use. And I started with Exposure X2 as a standalone application. I began with a picture of my favorite orange beast called Tangerine. He was sitting on the bed at the time, leaning on a pair of pants. This was many years ago. He is no longer with us. It's a fairly low-contrast image. His orange fur isn't as bright as it was in real life. Additionally, there's a belt on the pants in the background, and it's distracting. The background itself seems a little too dark. So I added a couple of effects. First, it's possible to remove the lens from a camera and still take a picture. When this is done, and there's a good reason for doing it, when this is done, light leaks invariably appear. I used an effect that creates a look like that, and the light leak brightened the background and provided actually a nice circular frame effect that I liked. This effect came with its own bit of bokeh, but I removed that and added my own. The second effect is that bokeh and the ovals that are visible when you take a look at the image on the TechBiter Worldwide website show the central part of the in-focus piece of the image, that's the inner oval, and a crossfade area to where the bokeh effects become most pronounced, that's the outer oval. Of course, those disappear when you export the photo for use elsewhere. As with any application that allows for manipulation to photographic images, Exposure X2 includes a lot of controls. Fortunately, Alien Skin provides a lot of video tutorials that explain how all those controls work. My next test started with Lightroom, using Exposure X2 as a plug-in for Lightroom. It appears in the Edit In menu, which is opened by right-clicking an image in Lightroom and then choosing Exposure X2. I started with a pumpkin picture. After all, it's fall, and Halloween is just around the corner. If the image you want to modify in Exposure is a JPEG image, you can choose to edit a copy or the original. Because the image I selected was a RAW image, the only option is to edit a copy with Lightroom adjustments. The default settings should be left just the way they are unless you know why you're changing them. Pumpkins are bright orange, but the pumpkin was in the shade, so its colors are muted. I wanted an effect that would cause the colors to pop out. Check out my final image. If you think it's too much, the colors are pretty bright there, you can adjust the amount of the effect to create an image that's somewhere between the original and the full modification. After you finish working in Exposure, Exposure then returns a copy of the modified image to Lightroom, and once it's back in Lightroom, you can do additional modification or even export it to Photoshop for pixel-based changes. I mentioned the Spot Healing Tool earlier. The Spot Healing Tool is a new feature in this version. It can be used to correct small imperfections in an image. Although this type of tool is most commonly used with portrait images to remove blemishes, it works just as well with images such as a flower from the Franklin Park Conservatory. You'll notice several imperfections in a couple of areas. Directly below the original image on the TechBiter Worldwide website is the corrected image. The repairs took less than a minute in total for both areas, and exposure is almost spookily good at selecting the right area to clone from. I wanted to try some of exposure's black and white effects, so I started with an image of an illegal use of a beer glass pouring a North High IPA into a Rheingeist dad glass probably isn't legal. Not a bad image except for the cluttered background. I wanted to take a look at some of the obsolete color looks 
and maybe even venture into monochrome. One of my favorite antique looks is autochrome. It's a process that was invented in 1909. The colors of autochrome were somewhat muted, but they were very natural. Check out the autochrome look on the TechBiter Worldwide website. I also wanted to see what a black and white look would do for the image. Many of the old monochrome processes introduced subtle color, sepia, chrome, platinum, for example. On the TechBiter Worldwide website, you'll see one that is platinum. I then added some vignetting to reduce the effect of the cluttered background, and the final result was a very nice black and white image. The history panel allows the user to return to any previous image. I selected one of the color looks that I'd examined while looking for the one that I eventually thought would work best with the image. To use one of these versions from the history panel, all you need to do is export it while the entry in the history panel is selected. Both Exposure and Lightroom are non-destructive editors, meaning that your original photograph is never modified. The two applications have different procedures for achieving the result, though. Lightroom maintains a catalog that contains information about changes made to the images. Virtual copies may be created. These don't duplicate the image, they just create an extra entry in the database so that one original image can have many edited versions. Exposure uses what are called sidecar files. These files contain information about the modifications made in Exposure. They're placed in a subdirectory of the directory where the image is, and the sidecar files have the same name as the original file with an extension of Exposure 2. Exposure also maintains a history list, so it's possible to return to any previous version of the file. I mentioned that just a moment ago. While this is functional, I still prefer Lightroom's virtual copy function. Depending on the camera you own, Exposure may or may not be able to interpret that camera's RAW files. I use a Samsung NX500 for snapshots. It's one of those little mirrorless cameras. But to modify files from this camera in Exposure, I have to start with Lightroom or use Samsung's application to create either a JPEG or a TIFF image that Exposure will be able to recognize. Most of my photography, though, is done with a Canon 60D, and Exposure can read those files just fine. So the bottom line for Alien Skin's Exposure X2, versatile both as a standalone or a plug-in, five cats, Exposure has been helping photographers improve their images for more than a decade, initially as just a plug-in for Photoshop and then Photoshop and Lightroom. The X2 version continues to develop Exposure as an application that stands on its own, if you want to use it that way, or works as a plug-in for Adobe applications. You'll find additional details on the Alien Skin website. There's a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. <laughs> have a love-hate relationship with Firefox? I have to admit that as much as I like Firefox, there are times that I want nothing to do with it. Unfortunately, I'm not alone. Firefox reached almost 50% market penetration in 2008, but it has been dropping since then. Today, Firefox has less than 17% market penetration compared to Chrome's 70% plus. And people aren't upgrading. Only about 3% of Firefox users have upgraded to the latest version. Firefox is a great browser, 
but the Mozilla organization hampers its performance by not making features that would allow it to be faster by default. If you use Chrome, every site has its own process. Firefox can do this, too, at least with the latest version, but the feature isn't enabled by default. Mozilla calls it electrolysis. You may want to enable it. Plans are to enable it by default eventually. Mozilla describes electrolysis this way. Electrolysis functionally hosts, renders, or executes web-related content in background child processes which communicate with the parent Firefox browser via various IPDL protocols. The two major advantages of this model are security and performance. Those are two key words. Security improvements are accomplished through the use of security sandboxing. Performance improvements are borne out by the fact that multiple processes better leverage available client computing power. Before attempting to enable electrolysis, you need to see if it's already active. If you're using Firefox 48 or later, type about colon support with no spaces in the address bar and look for a number higher than zero in the multi-process windows entry. If that's not there and you'd like to opt in, open about colon config and toggle browser.tabs.remote.autostart to true. Check the TechBiter Worldwide website for all of these spellings. On your next restart, E10S, which is the short name for electrolysis, should be active. If not, you'll need to visit the About Config page again and change two more settings. You'd search for extensions.e10s blocked by add-ons and set it to false, and search for extensions.e10s blocks enabling and set it to false. Then restart Firefox and check About Support once again. If you see a message indicating that E10S is still disabled, some add-ons and usability settings do disable it, you can force enable electrolysis. Mozilla says this is not encouraged and that using that setting is at your own risk. To do it, open About Config once again, create a new Boolean preference named browser.tabs.remote.forceenable, and set it to true. When you restart Firefox once again, check About Support, and you'll see that it is enabled. What you should see as a result of this is faster startup and page rendering, improved security, and possibly better stability. There's actually a lot that's new in version 49. In looking through the release notes, I noticed a small section tucked away in the new features segment that said, Narrate now reads the content of a page out loud. Most pages can use reader mode, any eligible page displays an open book icon on the right side of the address bar, click it to open reader mode, which eliminates much of the page's design and leaves only the words. I have a short video on the TechBiter Worldwide website that shows how to enable reader mode and then how to have the Mozilla Reader read the page. As the narrator reads, the current paragraph is highlighted. That video, by the way, was made with the soon-to-be-released Camtasia version 9. That'll be reviewed in an upcoming TechBiter Worldwide issue. There's nothing to install, nothing to enable if you want to use the reader function. As of version 49, the feature is present without any user intervention. The pop-up window allows you to start and stop narration, speed it up or slow it down, and change the voice. You have a choice of two, Zira, that's a woman's voice, and David, a man's voice. If you're one of those who migrated away from Firefox to Chrome or even Internet Explorer, you might want to take a look at what the folks at Mozilla have been doing recently to improve the Firefox browser.
short circuits, here's a true, if unwilling, case study of the importance of backup. Something happened. It might have been something I did. It might have been a power fluctuation, even though everything is powered by a UPS unit at my place. It might have been that one of the fairies dancing on the head of a pin fell off. Who knows? What I do know is that Windows suddenly told me Drive F could not be used until it was formatted. Well, Drive F houses all of my music, the Lightroom catalog, and a few other files that don't change very often. It's one partition on a physical drive that houses two logical drives. The other logical drive was fine, and applications that examined disk geometry and reliability reported no unusual findings, so the drive itself clearly was not failing. But where had everything on drive F gone? It was there, of course, but the logical drive was no longer recognized. The Windows Partition Manager reported it as raw, meaning that it was a section of the disk that looked like it had never been formatted. Formatting the partition would restore the drive, but delete all the data. At that point, I had two choices. Format and restore from backup. Or use a partition editor such as Parthead Magic to fix the partition without formatting it. The choice I selected may surprise you. I decided to let Windows format the drive and then restore from backup. Now, had this been a drive where changes are frequent, D, my primary data drive, for example, or E, the website development drive, I would have reached for the bootable USB drive with Parthead Magic on it. But I have added no new music for months, and only one image had been modified in Lightroom in the past few days. Formatting took just a few minutes. Restoring from a local backup that was less than a week old and that I store at the office took about two hours. Then I restored the Lightroom catalog from CrashPlan to make sure the most recent image modifications had been recorded. You're probably wondering, why not Parthead Magic? Well, that probably would have been faster, but I would always wonder if one or more of the files on the drive had been damaged at the same time the partition became unusable. Although the format and restore process took longer, I'm more confident that all of the data on the drive is exactly as it was before whatever happened, happened. <laughs> apps are popular on smartphones, but they may have permissions that you don't want them to have. After all, who reads all those long legalese agreements before clicking install? As a result, these apps could be providing unwanted access for stalkers, phishing, and malware. A British firm called Leading Dating Sites has tested 10 popular dating apps for Android systems and offers some information about the potential risks that include in-app purchases, location information, and access to photos, contacts, and data. You'll find a chart from leading data sites on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Here's what they found, and it's really not very reassuring. 80% of dating apps can access photos and other data on the smartphone. 70% of apps collect data about the location of smartphones, and with that can create a complete map of where the users have been, including where they live, their employer, and their hobbies. 20% of apps allow for access to SMS contacts and can read the user's text messages without their knowledge. Researcher Dirk Flitch describes the potential risk this way. Unauthorized SMS orders could be placed via your smartphone, and then you have a year's subscription for a special cat food that you haven't ordered. Well, that might be good for your cat, not so good for you. 
If you'd like to read the complete study, it's on the Leading Data Sites website. You'll find a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. Keep in mind that many smartphone apps, not just dating apps, ask for far more access than they need and then share your information with people that you might not want to have access to it. You have access to spare parts only on the website. This week, Epson's new scanner is intended for those who need to scan lots of old photos, applying arcade game technology to learning how to code, an online security test for your business, and Oracle asks if your employees have what they need to do their jobs. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.